This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hey guys, welcome back to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm Erica, your host, and today I'm talking with Jennifer Schubert Aiken. She is the founder of the Steamboat Institute, a really cool organization out in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Beautiful, beautiful place if you've never been there. I have gotten a chance to go several times and I love it. Um, But in addition to being just an awesome leader for this organization, Jennifer is also an accomplished athlete. She will be running the Boston Marathon this year for the 25th year in a row, but she's also run multiple 100-mile marathons. And it's really interesting to hear in our conversation today how that part of her life aligns with her time as a leader of the Steamboat Institute. Uh, Jennifer is someone that I really look up to and I've been fortunate enough to work with for the past several years. I'm honored to have her on the podcast today and I hope you enjoy this conversation. All right, talking today with Jennifer Schubert Aiken, uh, the president and founder of the Steamboat Institute in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Jennifer, thank you so much for talking with me today. My pleasure, Erica. Happy to be a guest on the podcast of one of my favorite people. <laughs> well, thank you. Yes, I am. I've had the great fortune of knowing you now for, I don't know, it seems like it's been about five years. And I think so. Yeah. And so for those that don't know, I do some work for the Steamboat Institute. I run their digital properties and social media. And so it's been so much fun to be able to kind of have that as a kind of a side job, but also just be still involved in all the things you're doing, which we're going to talk about a little bit. And there are many reasons I admire you, Jennifer. You you know some of them. And you know, there's you have kind of like two different parts to your life that both that I admire equally. One of them being, you know, you founded this growing and very successful nonprofit organization that's doing great things in both Colorado and really for the political discussion at large right now. And then also, which we'll get to in the second part of the interview, you are an avid runner. You have uh, run the Boston Marathon now 24 times. That's correct. So you'll be on your 25th year running the Boston Marathon straight year this year. And then you've also run several hundred mile ultra marathons, right? That's correct. I've uh, done several of those over the years. I'm not doing the ultra distances anymore, but uh, I, I had my fun with it. Yes. Yeah. That's hundred miles is uh, I, I want later. I want you to kind of tick, tick off some of the races that you've done, but um, I just wanted to bring that up in the beginning simply because I think that your, uh, your hard work and your tenacity and all that you're able to put into the kind of the running side of your life. I think that probably has translated well to other things that you have done in your life, specifically building this organization that has come such a long way in 10 years. Um, So let me just ask you, what is your background sort of before you started the Steamboat Institute? And then what led you to thinking, this is what I actually want to do with my life now? Sure. Um, I had an accounting business and small business consulting practice in Steamboat Springs um, prior to starting the Steamboat Institute, we moved to Steamboat from Austin, Texas in 1995, 
where I had been the CFO for a health and human services company. And in Steamboat, I started uh, my own small business consulting practice, uh, had a gr- number of really great small business clients that I enjoyed working with. And, uh, you know, one of the things I observed in working with small business clients is the uh, onerous government regulations and the effect that can have on small businesses. Um, so at the same time, I started going to Republican Party meetings, just local, local politics, and getting more involved. And I ended up being chairman of our local county Republican Party. And through that work, I began to see two things. One, how difficult it is to get good people to run for office. The second was when you get people to agree to run for office, it was really hard to get someone who could articulate free market principles clearly. Um, so I saw a need for two things. One was to to find good people to run, and the other was to get people who you know, help people articulate free market, uh, liberty-oriented principles. So uh, about that same time, while I was the party chairman, I learned about a program called the Leadership Program of the Rockies. I went through this program in 2006, and after graduating from the program, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with what I had learned in this amazing program that, that really immerses you in the founding principles of the country I had the opportunity to meet some great people from around the country who are leaders in uh, conservative thought and policy, free markets, that sort of thing. And also at about the same time, I was listening to Laura Ingram's radio show. And this was in the summer, and she had just returned from the Aspen Ideas Festival. She was talking about being the conservative, um, uh, kind of the token conservative at the Aspen Ideas Festival. And I thought, well, Aspen Institute, uh, you know, more left-leaning. Why couldn't there be a Steamboat Institute that would be sort of a counter to the Aspen Institute and educate people about free market principles and limited government and that sort of thing? So that was really the little seed of an idea and how all of these different things came together. You know, my, my background with small businesses and observing what they deal with, with government regulations, and then you know, being involved in party politics and then leadership program of the Rockies and Laura Ingram. And it all just came together and we thought, Hey, let's give this a try. So it wasn't just me. I want to emphasize that. Um, when we started the steamboat Institute in 2008, it was a group of small business people, mostly, uh, who had their own businesses. My husband's an attorney. I was an accountant. We had a jeweler, uh, other people doing other things and a small group of us came together and said, Hey, let's see if, uh, if we could, uh, start this organization that would give people the opportunity to learn more about the founding principles of the country. It was a very simple mission. And we put on our first freedom conference, which is what we decided to call it a two day event in August of 2009. And, um, it just, it really took off from there. It really resonated with people. It was exciting. And one of the things that I'm so impressed by are is the are the people that you're able to get 
out at the Freedom Conference, at some of your other events. Um, I'm going to bring up some of those things. But I believe you had, at the time, he was, uh, you know, GOP Conference Chairman Mike Pence. Wasn't he the first speaker, uh, keynote at the Freedom Conference? He was. Mike Pence was the very first speaker at our very first Freedom Conference in 2009, which is just amazing uh, to think about that. We still have something I treasure very much, which is a photo of my husband, Rick, and me with Mike Pence uh, in August of 2009. We all look just a little bit different uh, <laughs> since then, but it is a great photo. Um, and yes, it, it's just uh, amazing to look back at that and think that he was the very first speaker at the at the very first conference. So that's really special. And it's not easy to get someone like Mike Pence or someone like, for example, Steve Forbes or Senator Ben Sass or Carly Fiorina, some of these really big names that you've been able to get out to Steamboat Springs, which is not necessarily easy to get to. It's not a fly into New York, fly out type of situation. It's a, um, right. you know, you have to fly into a very small airport. Um, and so I'm wondering you know, I, did you have a lot of those kinds of connections when you started doing this? And when you get an idea to have someone like that, um, a, a big idea where you're like, that would be, you know, that would be the get. How do you go about a having kind of the confidence to make the ask and then persisting enough to where you actually get someone to do it? Um, someone that has a very busy schedule. These people are like, you know, their schedules are insane. And especially people that are working in government, it's so hard to nail them down and get them to commit to things. So tell me a little bit about that process, because I'm so impressed by how you do it. And I know it must be you having kind of a vision and not giving up. <laughs> That's right. That's where my 100 mile uh, race experience comes in handy. Exactly. Uh, and has, <laughs> Uh, the, the persistence and never giving up and just being relentless, um, which is probably a good word to describe me. Um, well, it goes back to the very first year uh, when we held that first Freedom Conference in 2009. We, that very first year, leveraging every contact we had made or that I had made through the leadership program of the Rockies, as well as um, one of our original founding board members was a communications consultant based in Washington, D.C. Um, she helped tremendously with connections with, with some of the people in Washington, D.C., you know, that, that universe that we were able to make connections with, as well as all the great people I had met through leadership program of the Rockies. So that very first year, this is critical because no one knew who we were and this gave us a chance to either establish our credibility or nobody would ever take another look at what we were doing. Mm -hmm. So that first year for the Freedom Conference, you know, a two-day event, Steamboat Springs, Colorado, how are we going to get people to come out to the mountains? Honestly, that first year, Erica, we didn't know if anybody would care or show up. <laughs> uh, we, we had put on one rally on the, on the courthouse lawn on April 15th, 2009, which was, you know, the infamous kick off to the, the Tea Party movement. And we, we were never really part of the Tea Party movement, but that's kind of how we got started uh, was about that same time. So August of 2009, our speakers at our very first Freedom Conference were Michael Reagan, Grover Norquist, Tony Blankley, uh, Michelle Bachman, who at that time was not well known, uh, but was just really starting to to uh, become known as a, a healthcare policy uh, leader in Congress, 
Um, let's see, John Fund, who was with the Wall Street Journal at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, there were several. You get the idea. Peter right. Brooks from the Heritage Foundation. So really had a tremendous lineup. Um, Dan Mitchell from the Cato Institute, Grace Marie Turner, uh, just tremendous lineup. We even had C-SPAN show up for our very first Freedom Conference, which was really comical. Not that, not that we had C-SPAN, but the comical part was we were such novices at doing this, we didn't even have an audiovisual budget. So <laughs> we worked with the local hotel. Uh, we've learned a lot in, in the last And how did years. C-SPAN get wind of it? Was it just because they ha- you had some of those big names and someone tipped them off, or did you call them? Yes. No, you know, honestly, I don't specifically remember. I think it was, uh, I think we, we had a press release. It was probably this. I hadn't actually thought about that in, in a long, long time. Uh, our board member, uh, Kirsten, who is a communications consultant based in D.C., uh, she's no longer on our board, but she was very, very helpful in those early years. Um, she did a press release, I believe, about Michael Reagan being our keynote dinner speaker, which was a huge gift for us that first year. And I think that was in the initial, if I remember correctly, I think that was the initial uh, way that, that C-SPAN found out that we existed. And since then, they've covered almost um, all of our annual events. Uh, they've, they've been to most of them. Who are some of the other people you've had? Now, I listed off Steve Forbes, Ben Sass, Mike Pence, Carly Fiorina, Laura Ingram. Who are some of the other bigger names that you've been able to get to some of your events? Oh, over the years, we've had so many. We've been really, really fortunate. Um, we had Carl Rove, mm-hmm. um, Kellyanne Conway. Uh, another one that, that's a name that is not so well known, but was one of our most favorite speakers over the years, Bob Woodson. Mm-hmm. Um, of the Woodson Center. It used to be the Center for Neighborhood Enterprise. Just yeah, I remember him, and my, my parents were there that year, and we both, we were all into that. He's uh, he's just a tremendous leader, transforms people's lives. Um, gosh, so many. You, you've named um, several uh, that, that we've had recently. Vice President Cheney, of course, and Liz mm-hmm. Cheney yep. did a joint presentation one year, and that was really special. Um, we've had members of the Wall Street Journal editorial board, um, Mary Kissel, James Taranto. Jillian um, Melcher. Yeah. <laughs> Jillian course. Melcher, of one course, of our of Tony course. Blankley <laughs> fellows. Just so, so proud of her. Well, yes, all of our Blankley fellows. And so many people that you mentioned from that very first year are people that I have met and seen again and again. And I think that kind of speaks to the strength of how you – continue on is that you're not asking people, Hey, come in for this year and talk to you later. You're like really forging strong relationships with people that are lasting and people clearly, you know, love you and Rick and love Steamboat and what you're doing. Was that something that you did intentionally or something that just kind of happened and people just continued to come back? Well, it, it was really two things, Eric, and I'm really glad you asked. Um, when we bring people out to Steamboat Springs for the annual Freedom Conference, and for that matter, with any event we host anywhere in the country, because we do events all around the country now, it is our goal to treat all of our guests, both the paying guests, you know, who register to attend, as well as our speakers and their guests, to treat them like family. We want them to go away thinking that this was one of the most special experiences they have ever participated in. So we take great care to make sure that not only is everything done correctly for their speech or their panel, their presentation, but that the the rest of the time they spend with us, we want it to be quality time where they 
They enjoy themselves. So when they come out to Steamboat Springs in August for the annual Freedom Conference, you know, it's grown into a two-and-a-half-day event, probably soon to be three. And it's a beautiful retreat-like setting in the mountains. So we do something that, that many organizations don't do, but because it is a little harder to get here and we want them to um, <clears throat> to be able to relax and have a good time while they are here, we encourage them to bring a guest with them, you know, whether it's a spouse or, or, or someone with them, so that they can enjoy the weekend. And by doing that, they relax, they spend the whole weekend here, which is rare. Many times at events or conferences, speakers fly in and out, they do their thing, they get on a plane and leave. Here, most of them stay for the entire weekend. They get to know the other speakers, which is unique. There's a lot of collaborating that goes on in Steamboat Springs, Colorado in August each year. And they also get to spend time with our guests who attend. That is one of the keys I want to point out to our success in inspiring people to want to know more about the founding principles and to get involved and be leaders in their communities, on their campuses, because we have many students who attend. It is the personal interaction with these nationally recognized leaders in free market, limited government policies. It is unlike many events you attend and you never have a chance to meet the speakers or talk with them. Yeah, so many of those conferences, the speakers are just in for their speech and then they're out. And so this is very different than that. Right. And that's that's been one of the linchpins of our success is we give the people who attend our events the opportunity to have quality interactions with the speakers. The speakers love it because this is also a new thing for many of them. It's not an impersonal, huge event where there are thousands of people and it's a you know, it's a really chaotic atmosphere, thousands of people running around. This is a maximum of 350. Now we've added the film festival. That's a, another subject. So we, we accommodate more people now. But the main conference itself, due to physical space limitations, has a maximum of about 350. So it creates a really quality retreat-like experience for the speakers and the guests. And that, once again, the whole point is it's not about just bringing famous people to Steamboat. It's bringing people that will inspire our guests to want to learn more about the founding principles and then get them involved in their communities when they go home because they come from all over America. Right, because you're not you're obviously not doing this for personal notoriety. I mean, you really you believe it's so important to have these conversations and to talk about these things. And <clears throat> that brings me to something else I wanted to bring up, which is you're not just doing, hey, this conservative conference where we talk about free market principles. You're also really invested in debate and discussion, which is not something you're seeing everywhere right now. So, for example, last year you had a debate series between uh, former Mexican President Vicente Fox and British uh, Britain's Nigel Farage, and they were debating nationalism versus globalism, obviously a very contentious topic right now. And they came from two different sides of the aisle. And you would not necessarily expect this conservative organization, the Steamboat Institute, to be, you know, hosting Vicente Fox, you know. And you're doing that um, yet again this year with another series. Um, You're doing a debate over free speech on college campuses. I know you're looking into getting some other names that are both from the left and the right to talk about issues. What makes that an important 
um, idea or an important thing for you guys to be doing right now? Because I think a lot of places like can't do things like that because a lot of times donors don't want to, you know, be funding something that maybe has someone a progressive or if you're on the left, a a conservative. So talk to me a little bit about that. Sure. Um, well, Erica, we, the Steamboat Institute, our board of directors and our supporters believe that this is a critical time in our nation's history. There are people advocating openly for socialist policies, uh, big government policies, more government control, uh, less individual liberty, and we're on a very slippery slope with that right now. Uh, we believe it is very important to, in particular, reach our next generation of leaders who are right now on high school and college campuses, um, as well as the recent graduates, and give them the opportunity to hear reasoned and respectful debates on these very serious issues, whether it's nationalism versus globalism, socialism versus capitalism, free speech on campus, uh, energy policy, you know, green versus, uh, you know, more of a mix of, of energy sources. There's so many things. And we believe the best way to do this, we don't want to only talk to people who already agree with uh, conservative principles, with free market principles, who already believe in limited government. We believe that the most important thing we can be doing right now is to be attracting people from all ideologies on the left, on the right, and somewhere in between to hear reasonable arguments where people do not scream at each other. Mm-hmm. I like to say it does not take a, it does not take much intellectual rigor to call someone stupid. Right. It does, however, take, take uh, a great deal of intellectual rigor and makes you really think through your own arguments if you have to debate someone on the facts. So what we did last year that was just hugely successful was the nationalism versus globalism debate tour that you mentioned with Vicente Fox and Nigel Farage. We visited four college campuses in five days, two in Colorado, two on the East Coast. Uh, One was at the University of Maryland, carried live on C-SPAN, and they were tremendously successful. We had uh, a great mix of people on both the left and the right, particularly students, at all four campuses and were just overwhelmed in a positive way with the response we received from the students on both the left and the right. They loved hearing a true debate. Um, it was great. Uh, we, we knew immediately we were on to something. So we are uh, at the end of January um, going to uh, host uh, two very robust discussions uh, called our American College Campuses Free Speech Zones. Uh, we have Alan Dershowitz participating in both of those, and we're going out to the West Coast uh, for these discussions um, at Pepperdine and Cal Berkeley. So those will be exciting. So for and all you late- people that live in Malibu. <laughs> yes. So if you live in Malibu, this is a great opportunity. Um, in Malibu on the Pepperdine campus, we'll have Professor Dershowitz and Professor Amy Wax from Penn Law School. They will be doing a discussion of this issue, and we will have uh, questions from the audience, which is where I think we'll really get into the debate, will be between the speakers and the audience. And our goal, once again, is to fill that, that room with people of all different ideologies who have different viewpoints on this so that everyone can have 
a respectful but robust discussion of this very important and timely issue. Um, we, we believe that's the best way for people to learn. Then later in the spring, we'll have the socialism versus capitalism debate tour. Uh, we're working on a couple of very high profile names for that. Yes, I know you don't want to say them, but uh, the one that you mentioned to me the other day, I was pretty excited about. Big draw. <laughs> it, it would your your listeners would know uh, these names immediately, so stay tuned. Yes, stay tuned. I'll definitely be telling everyone about that when the when those events come out. Now, I wanted to ask you, you know, college campuses are a place where the free speech issue is huge, obviously. So when you brought that debate last year with Vicente Fox and Nigel Farage to campuses, did you get any pushback? Did you get any groups saying they didn't want you to be there because you were bringing Nigel Farage, for example, because they don't like what he has to say? Yes, absolutely. Um, and we expected that. It, it was, once again, a great opportunity to show how free speech works and should work so, for example, at the University of Maryland, this is a great example, um, the day before the debate, the university president, Wallace Lowe, was inundated with emails from students who were demanding that he cancel the debate. Oh, yes. Now it's all coming back to me because he gave that yes. great speech that you guys played at the conference this year. It is. His speech is on YouTube. I will um, link it's that also in, this, in this post. It's, it's also on uh, C-SPAN archives at cspan.org. It is an, an inspiring speech. Yes. Uh, not only did President Lowe not cave to the pressure of the students and cancel the debate, which would have been an easy thing for him to do, he decided that this was important to have a debate, that this is, this is why you come to college is to learn, uh, to learn how to interact with other people, to learn how to debate ideas to sometimes listen to ideas that are different from your own, maybe that, that, that really provoke you and make you think, you know, outs, outside of your own comfort zone. And he not only did not cancel the debate, he attended and gave the most eloquent defense of free speech on a college campus in his opening remarks that I had ever heard. It was, it was truly inspiring. And so we, the Steamboat Institute has an award we give each year in August uh, called the Courage and Education Award, and we selected President Lowe of the University of Maryland for that award and, and presented that to him at our Freedom Conference this past August. And I um, and, and he doesn't uh, identify as conservative, right? No, no, he he does not. I, I have no idea what his party affiliation is, if any. Um, it's it's irrelevant. It's it's more about his willingness to be a strong leader and to ensure that students. Uh, on his campus have an opportunity to hear all viewpoints and, you know, presented in a respectful manner. Now, we did have protesters outside of the um, event that evening, but the protest was peaceful. It did not interfere with the event. And so I, I always say protesters, as long as it's peaceful, are just exercising their free speech right, just like we are. So it, right. it turned out to be a, a great event for, for everyone, and, and we really admire President Lowe a great deal. Yeah, I think that's important to say that, Hey, protesting is great. I mean, don't shut the speech down. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on, right. and that's a big part of this. Exactly. Um, now, you also have 
um, a real focus on youth. I'm, I'm actually amazed, Jennifer, at like all that you're able to do with such a small staff. And you've got these Liberty Tours. You've got the Blankley Fellowship Program, which I'm going to ask you about, the, um, the Leadership Council, and then you have several other events that you're doing throughout the year. Um, why do you think it's so important to make sure that you're focusing on youth? Well, Erica, the reason we are putting such an emphasis on the development of young people and giving them these opportunities is this is our next generation of leaders. If they don't have a firm grasp of the founding principles of of the proper role of government, of how free markets operate, uh, out of you know what individual liberty really means, um, it's it's not just a these are not just words. These these have a huge impact on our quality of life and and whether our country will be able to continue uh, as you know the the shining city on a hill uh, for future generations. And what we are finding is there are many students at the high school and college level who are open to learning about these principles if they've not already had that opportunity they're open to learning about it. And if you approach them in the right way and you're not preaching at them, but you're giving them opportunities to learn. I want to emphasize, we don't tell people what to think. We try to teach them how to think, Hmm. to think for themselves and to analyze uh, using critical thinking skills. Um, I believe, you know, if you're if you present things in the right way, you can persuade people to see that, how these principles. Yeah, I, I love how you said that. We don't, we're not telling people what to think, but how to think, because I think that is something that is so lost right now. Um, just in, yes. <laughs> I mean, in the world of fake news, whatever side it comes from, people just kind of believing and regurgitating things that just flow into their newsfeed or that they're hearing from someone that they agree with. They just. That, you know, just pass it on as if it were true in fact. Um, and critical thinking skills, I think, are so lost right now. And I don't, that's something that I'm really not hearing a lot of people talk about. So that's kind of a concept I would, I don't know what I'm going to do with that thought, but I'm going to do something with it because you brought it up. Um, so, so I love that it's so a, much. And on the, on the campuses that where we've been, you know, we've had a great relationship um, over the past five years or so with the University of Colorado Uh, Thanks to the leadership of President Bruce Benson, who has uh, really turned the Boulder campus, helped to turn the Boulder campus and all of the University of Colorado system into um, an educational system where all viewpoints and ideologies are welcome in the marketplace of ideas, as it should be. So getting back to our work with students, we have our Emerging Leaders Advisory Council, which is a approximately 22 young people from around the country uh, who have attended our Freedom Conference on scholarships. They've demonstrated uh, the capacity to become leaders on their campuses or in their communities. Some of them are recent college graduates. And we we see a tremendous opportunity to, to be helpful to them, to help nurture their careers and their education on these issues and help them gain the confidence to become leaders. So, for example, when they come to our Freedom Conference, um, there's a great photo in our annual report that's linked on our website, steamboatinstitute.org, where you see this group of young leaders, high school, college students, some, as I said, some recent graduates, in this great group photo with the Secretary of the Interior, Ryan Zinke. Now, you tell me one other organization in the country that would give the 
the the students attending on scholarship a chance to actually meet and mingle with your keynote dinner speaker. Right. I don't know any others who who operate that way, but our board of directors and our donors believe that this is the most important thing we could possibly do is the development of these young leaders, hosting the debates and discussions on campuses that that attract people from all across the ideological spectrum. Um, And then also along the development of um, emerging thought leaders is, as you've mentioned, our Tony Blankley Journalism Fellowship, where we support and nurture the careers of outstanding young journalists by awarding um, an annual fellowship to help them uh, as they are new in their careers, maybe just starting out, but have shown great potential and promise to be effective journalists who will be fair, balanced, and and um, and really be able to articulate uh, free market principles. Yes, and can you just quickly um, tell us about Tony Blankley? Uh, he, why is this in his name, and why is he so important to remember, recognize, and in, 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 in this way? Tony Blankley was critical to the early success of the Steamboat Institute. I'm not sure we would have ever taken off like we did without Tony and his wife, Linda, who were so tremendously helpful in our early years, particularly. Um, Tony Blankley was editorial page editor of the Washington Times. He was also a regular panelist for many years on the McLaughlin Group, which was the original political talk show uh, going way back 30 years, I believe, 30 plus years. He also became well-known when he was press secretary to Newt Gingrich when uh, he became uh, Speaker of the House back in the mid-90s. So Tony was was well-known, and our very first year of the Freedom Conference in 2009, we had the good fortune of having Tony Blankley come out to Steamboat Springs, Colorado to speak at our conference. Well, he and his wife, Linda, enjoyed it so much that they came back the next year in 2010 and the next year in 2011. And at that point, we were calling him uh, kind of jokingly the face of the Steamboat Institute because he everyone looked forward to meeting Tony and visiting with him each year uh, at our annual margarita party, our Coyote Gold margarita party that, that we, we end the conference weekend with this great margarita party and outdoor concert each year. It's so much fun. And Tony would be there uh, surrounded by his fans, drinking margaritas and just relaxing and visiting with people. It was, it was just a tremendous experience for him and for our guests. Well, in 2012, uh, sadly, Tony passed away from cancer. And we wanted to do something substantial and meaningful to um, honor his memory and to build on his legacy. He was known for his sense of humor uh, his style, he was a very stylish dresser, but he could articulate conservative principles, free market, limited government, liberty-oriented principles better than anyone I'd ever heard. Um, and he had a British accent, which was charming and wonderful. Even better. <laughs> and just, even better. And we, we decided to start uh, this fellowship in his name, and we called it, called it the Tony Blankley Fellowship for public policy and American exceptionalism, because Tony believed very strongly in American exceptionalism, which is really special knowing 
that he was born in, and raised in London and then immigrated to America and, and became a citizen. So it's really special to have the perspective of someone who was an immigrant to this country who believed so deeply in American exceptionalism and could articulate it with good humor and in a way that was very compelling. And, you know, once again, this kind of ties in. I think Tony would be thrilled with our campus debate series. He was very skilled at getting along well with people on both sides of the aisle. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that's what we aspire to do as well. So we launched the, the Journalism Fellowship to recognize uh, emerging young journalists and conservative thought leaders who, uh, who believe in the same principles as Tony and the Steamboat Institute. And it is amazing the, the quality of the, the young talent out there that we have identified through this journalism fellowship that we just awarded um, the fifth one uh, this past year to Philip Wegman from the Washington Examiner. It's, it's a tremendous group of Blankley fellows that we have, um, and uh, we're just very, very proud of them and proud to have this impact on journalism. I feel like I could talk to you forever, but I, I want to make sure we talk about your running a little bit um, because I'm so fascinated by it. When I met you, I didn't even know you were a runner, and then being a marathon runner myself, I was so intrigued by your running career. So um, I wanted to ask you, how, what, you know, what's your history with the sport? And what what do you love about long distances so much? Oh, that's that's quite all right. It is switching topics, but I will say, without my hundred mile race experience, um, I don't think there would be a Steamboat Institute. Honestly, it it really helps you to focus and to learn how to work through difficult times and to be relentless and to you know to stay focused on difficult tasks that have a very long timeline mm-hmm. but the way i got into running back in the early 90s i was not an athlete let's make that very clear i was <laughs> not i was not some you know natural athlete who had uh, natural talent in running or anything else i was just you know kind of a, a hack tennis player and and you know would you know do do some things you know ski and and those sorts of things i was definitely not an athlete in the early 90s, when we were living in Austin, I um, worked in a, uh, a place with many runners, and they were always doing 5Ks and 10Ks, and I was, you know, always 15 to 20 pounds overweight, could never seem to knock off that, that last 15 pounds, and, and I decided I needed to do something to get in better shape. I just thought, this is ridiculous. Uh, there are people 20 years older than me that are in far better shape than I am, so I just I uh, asked a friend for some advice and uh, went out on that first run. She said, "See if you can go for 15 minutes. Just run around your neighborhood." Well, I made it for 17 minutes, and I thought, "Wow, I've really done something." So it literally started as something that simple. And three years later, I ran my first marathon, the Big Sur Marathon, out in California, which Ooh, is good one. just beautiful. Yeah, a good one to start with, and I was hooked. Uh, I I actually really enjoyed it. Um, and a couple of years later, I qualified for my first Boston marathon. Uh, that was 1995 and I just kept running my qualifying time every year and just kept going back and going back. And, um, now this year I'll be, uh, running my 25th Boston in a row, which is just really, really hard to believe. Yeah. Um, and Boston has gotten so much bigger in the past decade. It, it, it's gotten huge. Uh, they do a great job of managing the crowd, though. I, I will give them a lot of credit for that. 
Uh, I was happy that my very first year that I ran Boston in 1995, it was still a small race, only mm-hmm. about 9,000 runners. So I got to have that experience of being out in the little town of Hopkinton when you could still go just walk around the town on your own before the race started. It was much more low key. And, and so I'm glad I got to see what that was like. Well, in, in addition to, to running and qualifying, you also, and I don't know if you've done this every year, you also raise a large amount of money every year, which is no small feat, especially when you are ob- running a nonprofit, which is a whole other thing that you're raising money for. So, And I know that the issue that you're raising money for is very close to your heart. So tell us why you you know fundraise, even though you don't have to because you qualify, and, and what is it about that um, particular um, cause that, that is, uh, makes you want to do it? Um, each year, and this goes all the way back to 1995, I on, on my own, raise money for the National MS Society. Uh, that is because my sister, Yvonne, who's four years younger than me, was diagnosed with MS when she was only 25 years old. And she has lived with it now for 30 years. Uh, she can no longer walk. She uses a scooter. And I just feel very strongly that there has to be a cure. I know they're getting closer. And it's, it's my way of trying to help. And over the years, we've built this army of donors. We call it Jennifer's Run for MS. And every year, I send out you know, a bunch of emails, and it is amazing the response we get. Uh, the group of generous people, which has really grown over the years, um, we've raised uh, about $122,000 for the National MS Society wow. doing this since 1995. And you know, in an ideal world, uh, there would no longer be a need uh, for fundraising for the MS Society. But unfortunately, there still is that need. And as long as there's a need and I can keep going, we're going to uh, continue to, to raise money to go toward finding a cure. Is it ever hard to, I mean, just this kind of goes back to Steamboat, um, because when you work, when you're running a nonprofit, I mean, you are constantly having to pitch to donors. And that is not easy. Is that, does that ever become hard for you? Yes. Yes, it is. Um, but here's the thing with fundraising that I have learned over the years. You're not asking people to give you something. You're asking them to invest in something that is so important that they get excited about writing you that check. Mm-hmm. That, that is what can make fundraising so rewarding. Yes, there are times when it can be hard, when, when someone won't return your call or they put you off or that sort of thing, that's just part of the, that's just part of the territory that goes with it. But there are so many people that if I have an opportunity to visit with someone one-on-one, get them excited about the future of our country and these amazing young leaders, this next generation of free market leadership that is out there, it is so exciting. And to see the, impact we're having on college campuses. Uh, So I'm not, I don't ever feel like I'm just asking someone to give us something. I'm asking them to invest in the future of our country. And that's a really exciting thing. So if you approach it that way, it's really not hard at all. And yes, of course, there are, as I said, some difficult times. I mean, that's just life. Anything can be difficult. But um, if you approach it that way, that you're giving them an opportunity to invest in, in the future of the country. Um, it's really very exciting. Ask you one more question about the, you know, I, I'm so intrigued by anyone that can run a 100 mile ultra marathon. How many ultras have you run? <laughs> well, you know, an ultra is defined as anything longer than a marathon. So anything right. longer than 
26.2 miles. Um, I, I don't even know how many I've done from 50 K to a hundred miles. It's, it's dozens, but, uh, what are the hundred mile milers race, that you've done? Do you do you did Western States? Yes. I, uh, I finished the Western States 100, uh, the, the one time I ran it, that was a, a really exciting experience. It's a beautiful, beautiful course. Very challenging, of course. Uh, but I really got hooked on the Leadville 100, uh, yeah. uh, which is uh, it's a very famous race here in Colorado. It starts and ends at 10,200 feet elevation. Oh so it's goodness. very, very, very high. The low point on the course is 9,200 feet. <laughs> um, it, it, it's all almost all run on mountain trails. So, you know, rugged, lots of steep climbing and descending, you know, rocky trails. Yes. But it's, it's just beautiful. And uh, the first time I attempted Leadville, I failed, dropped out at uh, 60 miles. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second year, I failed again, um, just just couldn't quite do it. The first year, I took a bad fall and, mm-hmm. and uh, couldn't finish. Second year, I just mentally couldn't handle it. It's, it's a real mental game as, as oh, well yeah. as physical. So I, I made a list of my weaknesses um, after that second uh, failed attempt. And decided, you know, if you're going to finish this thing, you have one more try. Uh, so I decided what I needed to do to change my training to make myself stronger and trained harder than I'd ever trained before to get ready for that race. And I finished in 28 hours and 40 minutes, uh, finally on my third attempt and, and had, a, had a great one. So I went back a, a couple of times after that. I did have one more failure after that one year when I was... Uh, having a lot of GI problems during the race, but I, I ended up finishing the Leadville Trail 100 three times. And wow, and well, you and you mentioned how that kind of a thing prepares you to do other things in life. And I've heard many interviews with ultra runners. My sister has a running podcast, and she has interviewed tons of them. Um, and so I've heard a lot about it. And, and what I've heard from them is that you know, you can, a marathon is one thing, but when you're doing a hundred miles, you can be say, I don't know, 50, 60 miles in, feel like you're going to die, but then you can actually recover and end up having, finishing strong because you go through so many different phases of physicality during the race. And and you have to know, you know, in your head, like that this many times this too shall pass. Um, Can you, what is it like in those moments? You know what? What you just said doesn't that sound a lot like life? Yes. <laughs> you, go, you go. You go through really difficult times when you feel like you want to quit and you can't see how things are ever going to get better, and then they do. And then you think, "Wow, I'm really glad I persevered through that. I'm glad I didn't give exactly. up." Exactly. That that hundred mile races, and I don't. I don't mean to sound like some great philosopher because I'm not. <laughs> but but a hundred mile race is is. Uh, really uh, a metaphor for life in many ways. And yes, you go through phases in these races when you're, when you're racing for a hundred miles and in the case of the Leadville 100, it's similar to other hundred mile races in that it has a 30 hour time limit. And most of us are not uh, fast enough to stop and take a nap during that 30 hours. So <laughs> right. you're you're continuing to go and, you know, you have to eat and drink along the way. And that's, an, of course, a critical part of it. But you go through peaks and valleys, uh, both literally and figuratively. And yes, I've been at the point of uh, mile 70 throwing up on the side of the road uh, in the middle of the night and it's cold. And if you're going to finish, you you finish 
throwing up and then you pick yourself up and you move on down the road. And it's actually the last time I finished, uh, my crew thought I, they thought that was it. They thought if she stumbles into the next aid station, that's it. We're all going home. (laughs) I got to the next aid station and I was getting ready to start this epic climb up to the 80 mile point. And I, I was like born again. I felt great. Oh my gosh. That's so crazy. It, it is very crazy. So if you can push through those difficult times and then the sun comes up the next morning and you're still out there on the trail and you know that finish line is in sight, it is a phenomenal feeling. There's there's really nothing quite like it. It's it's hard to describe, but it's I'm really glad I had those experiences and and now I enjoy going uh there for the race every summer and, and being a pacer yeah. for others who are running the race and helping others who are running it. So um, always happy to help other runners. I can imagine how it would feel to go back and not be running of it, just kind of be in the midst of it. Um, even, even as a marathon runner, um, I love being a spectator because I'm just like, I know how you're feeling right now. <laughs> yes. It's, it's great fun. I, I thoroughly enjoy it. So two, just two more questions on that real quick. I wanted to ask you, what do you eat at the aid stations? What's your favorite thing to eat? And then also what did it feel like when you finished that first time at 28 hours? I mean, what, what did you feel like? Well, your first question, what do you eat? It is really um, a wide variety of food that different runners can tolerate. Everybody's different. Um, for me, mostly, I, I'm really boring on what I eat during a race. I mean, if you, want to eat <laughs> if you want to eat something that tastes good, wait till the race is over. Exactly. And then, then I can have my cheeseburger and large fries. Um, but during the race... Um, during a long race like that, you actually do eat some real food like, uh, you know, a turkey wrap and some potato chips, something like that. Uh, but during the latter stage of those races, really all I could eat was goose and gels, mm-hmm. which sounds really boring. But during my Safer. last finish at the Leadville 100, I probably ate 30 gels. Which oh, I my gosh. Is, that's crazy. Which sounds, which sounds disgusting, but, <laughs> you know, you're eating one about every 30 minutes to well, keep your blood sugar. You're burning so many calories. You need it. You, you really need um, like nine to 10,000 calories during one of those races. So it, it's, and it's hard to take in enough calories, which is, that that is a problem for a lot of people. It's yeah. really challenging. Oh. Well, I just, I know that I've seen in, you know, some of these ultra marathons, you see they've got all kinds of crazy stuff at the aid stations, like candy bars and cookies and stuff. And to me, I, I would not want that. I would be with you. Cause when I run long distances, I am, I only have goo as well. So I would probably be more in your, <laughs> in your boat on that it's, one. It's, um, it's whatever, you, whatever you can keep down. And then you, you had asked, what is it, what was it like to cross the finish yes, line? Yes. Yes. Just tell you briefly, uh, in the Leadville 100, it's an out-and-back course, and if you can make it through the night, the race starts at 4 a.m. on Saturday. The goal is to finish at 10 a.m. on Sunday. So on Sunday morning, uh, I will never forget going around Turquoise Lake, which is just beautiful. The sun was just coming up, and it was uh, you could see the mountain in the distance, uh, Hope Pass, which is the signature of the Leadville 100, that you knew you had been over that the day before and you were still out there moving and the sun was coming up. It was, it was really tremendous. Uh, when that happens, it's really hard to describe. And then you just kind of almost float on into the the finish line after that. It's almost a surreal experience, but it, it's very special. It's a very special race. Do you sleep for a very long time afterwards? 
Yes. <laughs> Best sleep of your I, life, probably. Cheeseburger and fries and then sleep. What would be your best advice for a first-time marathoner? First thing, pick a race that you really want to do. Pick a race that sounds fun to you. For me, it was the Big Sur Marathon because of the scenic beauty. I'm, I'm a scenery junkie. Uh, so pick a race that you really want to do that means something to you. And then for the training plan, um, either pick up a book like uh, the Hanson's Marathon Program, I think is just tremendous. Mm-hmm. And they have a beginner program in their book. I'm a big fan of the Hanson's Method. So if, if you don't have a coach, you know, if you have the luxury of being able to hire a coach to help you, then hire a coach, someone that you feel comfortable working with, um, and or get the Hanson's Marathon Method and follow their beginner program. That makes a huge difference. Yeah, I think following a plan is is so key. <laughs> Otherwise you're, you don't know what you're doing. Um, well, let me, let me ask you, g- going back to the more kind of political side of the conversation, number one, who would be a dream speaker or two that you have in mind for a potential freedom conference in the future? Um, well, a dream speaker, there, there could be a couple of people. One, to have a president, a sitting president of the United mm-hmm. States speak would be huge. Have you tried? <laughs> um, we, we have not tried yet. Um, realizing that logistically, um, because of the physical location where we do this event, uh, it, it might be difficult to, I mean, there are a number of you know, security reasons and other right. things why, why it might be challenging. Uh, but, but that would be, I guess if I had to say one dream speaker, it would be to have a sitting president of the United mm. States. That's very cool. And on the, you know, keeping with the idea of, you know, respecting both sides and being civil and all of these things, do you have any um, progressive or liberal, either government leaders or just influencer type of people that you respect, even though you disagree with them? President Lowe at the University of Maryland would be a great example because, as I said, I don't know what his political affiliation is, nor do I care, but I, I always admire people who have the courage of their convictions, but present their, their point of view in a, they try to present their point of view in a respectful way. Mm-hmm. So I can totally disagree with someone, but if, if they are respectful in the debate you're having about the issue, that's what I really respect. I don't know if you're familiar with Bari Weiss, you know, she's a, a New York times columnist and, um, I think she identifies more as a liberal, but she's very into supporting free speech. And she's kind of one of those people, you know, you've heard of the intellectual dark web. Um, those people, Jordan Peterson, part of that. Um, right. Some of those uh, folks that are on the left, but also part of that. I, I think people like that, I think they're really helping the debate and the conversation. And I would like to see more on both sides of the aisle um, kind of being a part of that kind of a movement. Okay, two questions left. Uh, first one, uh, if you could have dinner or drinks with a celebrity, who would it be? <laughs> I, w- I, would say, I would say Condoleezza Rice. That, that yeah. might be who I'd like to sit down and have dinner and drinks with. And the last question I like to ask people, uh, just because I'm so interested in, in what people are reading and thinking about, do you have any books that you've read recently or maybe a television show, movie, podcast, anything that you've read, seen, heard recently that you really enjoyed and you might want to tell other people about? There is a book that I just finished reading over the holidays at the recommendation of a friend. Um, 
it's uh, by Dina Castor, who, of course, is yes. one of the greatest um, uh, women's American marathoners ever. Um, I think she still holds the American record in the marathon. But uh, Dina Castor has a book out called Let Your Mind Run, mm-hmm. uh, a memoir of thinking Thinking My Way to Victory. It's a fascinating book. I highly recommend it. Jennifer, I've heard um, so much about that book because and it's on I just put it on my list of things to read because I, I mentioned my right. sister has a, a podcast about running and she has actually interviewed Dina about three times. And um, they read the book and she loves the book. It was like her favorite book of the year. And so I now you've convinced me I must get this book and start reading it. Yeah, it's uh, she's another person I would like to have dinner or drinks with. By the way, so now 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 you've got me thinking about that. I have a growing list of of well known people I want to have dinner or drinks with. So add Dina Castor to the list. You'll want to too after you read her book. Well, and I will I will say um, my sister does a lot of live events. Like for example, she was at the New York City Marathon this year, and she did. A, she had a live event with the New York Roadrunners and with um, Paula Radcliffe. And so she could potentially have some kind of similar thing at the Boston Marathon this year. Um, Although she's running Boston, so I don't know that she would. But but she may potentially have a live event with Dina Castor at one of these. So, hey, uh, if if you guys are in the same place, I'll I'll make sure that you uh, get connected. I would love to. And and another person, see, you've got me thinking now. Another, per, <laughs> another person, and now we're going off on this complete running No tangent. worries, no worries. But, but Desi Linden, I just yes. have such respect for her. Her winning the Boston Marathon last year in the cold driving rain was just so special. Oh, I, yeah. I, was, I think I was as thrilled about her race as I was about mine. Uh, mm-hmm. When I heard that she had won the race, I was just overjoyed. That was just such an amazing accomplishment. Well, I've got to send you the link to my sister's podcast because she has all these people on and you would love it. (laughs) I'm a fan. I'm a fan already. (laughs) All right. Well, I, unfortunately, I got to jump off, but I have loved talking with you. It's been really fun to just kind of like dig into some stuff that we probably don't usually have time to talk about because we're so busy, you know, doing our other things when we, when we see each other or when we chat. So thank you for taking an hour out of your day. Well, thanks everyone for listening in on our conversation today. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast or you've been enjoying the worth your time podcast, I would appreciate it so much if you'd head over to iTunes and just give me a quick rating and review. It helps so much in making sure the podcast gets seen and gets in front of other people who are like you who may really enjoy these interviews and take something from them. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next Tuesday. This episode was brought to you in part by the Compelled Podcast which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.